0: Hey, everybody, thanks for joining me for a very impromptu live show here. Uh, The basis for this live show really is to kick off the giveaways that you will be able to raffle in the next live show, which is happening on the twenty-first, so let's just get right down to all the things that are on offer here. I uh, so actually, before I do that, I should say that, like many automotive review channels and review people out there, when we attend events for, say, a new Toyota Prius or I don't know whatever this thing was, um, manufacturers will often give us some sort of swag item. So over here we have a ZR2 water bottle or insulated flask whatever this thing here is and uh, we accept them but we don't keep them and I've made that very clear to everybody that works here uh, you actually have to give me the stuff and then the stuff collects in my studio if you've ever wondered what is happening over there in the studio there's a massive pile of stuff and uh, then it actually becomes a liability to us because instead of us getting free stuff I actually spend money to mail you stuff. So um, if you want the stuff, there are instructions down there at the bottom of the screen scrolling along about how you can enter yourself into the raffle to, you know, uh, be the proud owner of a Brembo Sensify insulated, whatever that is, or I don't know, Honda Civic type R hat. Anyway, let's just get down to the stuff. Uh, Some of these are repeats because uh, manufacturers sometimes will send us more than one thing. And I can't walk through that side of the studio anymore, so I need to be able to get to my desk. So let's just dive right in. We have a ZR2 water bottle. The actual raffle is going to happen next Friday at uh, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. So a lot of you have been asking for a later date. That's what I have set. Over here, we have a Brock UVC uh, self-sterilizing water bottle. That sounds interesting. Obviously, power required. I don't know what this thing is uh it is an insulated, vacuum insulated toyota crown water bottle flask insulated thing you can keep your soups in there and then uh you can match it with your crown it's not two-tone though i have a, a brembo paperweight that's kind of cool actually it has a some brembo brake caliper there that's kind of nice uh we have some ray-ban sunglasses which are Very top gun somehow. I don't know who gave us those, but there are some some Ray-Bans moving along. The uh, giveaway is only applicable to people living in the United States. So sorry to our Canadian and other international friends. I know there are a lot of you, but uh, shipping to Canada proved really expensive the last time we tried it. So we're just not going to do that again. Uh, We have Brembo Sensify thermos there. We've got some Santa Cruz mug, a Ford mug. Those are kind of nifty. A Yeti from Hummer. It's a Hummer EV mug. Uh, you can use that if you've, uh, obvi- I mean, if you're really needing a Hummer EV mug, I'm assuming you didn't buy a Hummer, but whatever. Uh, Lexus, this one is a water bottle with what looks like a pull-off cork top. But it's actually a ceiling twisty top there. That's kind of nice. Apparently, lots of manufacturers want to save the environment by giving us reusable water bottles, even though we have a million of them. Uh, MX-30 Mazda water bottle there. These are the kind where if you really want to upset someone, if you're flying economy, you could just jam these in and out of the seat back behind you, and that's going to really upset some folks. At any rate, Nissan Fender Audio water bottle there. A clear one here. This is a Busy Forks water bottle from a Toyota for the new EV there. Moving along. This one does seem kind of cool. It is a... uh vacuum layered with heat sorb coffee thing. So supposedly there's a layer in there that will heat up and help keep your coffee warm for longer. Uh, if you have any burning questions, you can always post them into the comment section. We'll talk about those in a bit. Oh, oh more water bottles here. We have just unknown water bottle, whatever that is. Another Nissan water bottle. Lots of Nissan bottles. Uh, this one is uh, also mysterious in origin blue though maybe Ford moving on uh that's it for the water bottles now let's get on to the hats because the hat game is getting extreme here we have a GR Supra hat a Civic Type R hat a gray just generic Toyota GR Gazoo Racing hat right there we have another one we have a Wagoneer hat this is kind of a suede finish hat it's kind of schnazzy a jeep wrangler hat if you have a four by e you might want this electric lime green one Hummer ev hat we have a honda hat uh supposedly i someone might know this one but apparently this is sort of vintage honda wear they're saying so that's kind of interesting acura hat we have a electric mustang hat for the mock e there we have a brembo sensify hat we have a uh, raptor r toke that's kind of a winter wear thing a honda one and even a vintage alex on autos one because it's no longer on my walls. So now it needs to get given away and let's move along then we come to clothing this is like a big pile here so uh this is the unfortunate part obviously i only have one size of these things so when you snag one you're just gonna have to find a person that will fit the merch. uh And uh, then just give it to them. So we have a medium Prius Prime lightweight jacket and a large Prius Prime lightweight jacket. Those will go over there. We have a Hyundai shoulder bag purse, merce thing. I'm not sure what that's for. Uh, We have an Audi blanket for those cold Audi nights when your German car mysteriously blows up in the night. Did I say that out loud? Um, we have uh, Supra socks. These actually surprised me. I didn't realize that anybody uh, would make these as a marketing merch item, but they have the different generations of Supra. I can't see them right there on the angle. Different generations of Supra on the gray Supra socks. So that's kind of cool. Uh, we have a Gazoo Racing t shirt. We have a single shoulder shoulder bag. I think this one was from Mazda. We have a Bridgestone Toque Honda bag. This is another blanket, a Hummer EV blanket. You can use those if you're worried about EVs in the winter, a Honda shirt with the red Honda logo, which is just on the chest there, fairly discreet. Uh, some sort of small throw blanket origins unknown Mazda CX-30 backpack. This is actually quite a handy size. I have to say it's a North Face backpack with the Mazda embroidery there on the top. This one is uh, very much for the Subaru folks out there. Uh, This one is a Subaru picnic bag with plates, and even cutlery. So don't take that one on the plane with you. It even has some little plastic champagne glasses in there and a tiny cutting board with a uh, little felt blanket on the side. So that's kind of cute for your your uh, déjeuner celeb, shall we say. Moving that along. We have people that live in the tundra, Arctic tundra of Chicago or nearabouts. We have a Bridgestone... North Face jacket. This is actually really, really warm. It does not have a removable liner. It is all just sort of one piece puffy snow jacket with a faux, faux, whatever, faux fur hood there. Miscellaneous bags. We have, I don't know, what is this? A Oh, an infinity, lightweight, uh, layered style thing for under your ski wear. That's also North Face. Apparently manufacturers love North Face. We have a puffy infinity jacket, also North Face. And then we move along to an infinity toque, going with all the North Face things. This is um, this is a Ford Bronco uh, scarf. There we go. Ford Bronco scarf. I didn't didn't know we needed one of those in the world, but that's actually kind of cool. I. I would probably wear that. A uh, Chrysler Pacifica zippered bag thing. Don't know what that's for. Another little toque. This one has a Chrysler logo on it so you can rock your minivan away. More hats Acura hat, demon hat, or a red eye hat, rather. Another Gazoo Racing shirt of a slightly different design. Apparently, Toyota's been giving us lots of shirt merch. And a Corolla Cross bag for all of that to go in. Over there to the other side. And one last bag of goodies. We have a UV sterilization box for your smartphone. Uh, Oakley sunglasses. A model Toyota Mirai. So if you uh, always wanted a Mirai, but you live somewhere outside of California, you can have a tiny one. We have a tiny Acura... TLX Type S, a tiny Acura MDX Type S. Those are those are kind of cool. Those little, you know, scale models. That's what they look like right there. If you're watching along, uh, we then have Bose noise canceling headphones. Ooh, this is the Bose Noise Cancelling 700 UC. That's kind of a snazzy one. Uh, we also have a JBL Harman Bluetooth Tune 255 set there, and. For those that are fancier, a Bang & Olufsen E8, a ZR2 hat, and then an insulated ZR2 bag for all these doodads to go in. And last but not least, we have a Nintendo Super Mario Brothers Color Game & Watch. I had to look that one up, so if you don't know what that is, You can Google it. I had to. And we also have, these are actually probably the most exciting thing of all. We have two National Park annual passes uh, that uh, are valid for entrance for a single privately owned non-commercial vehicle or pass holder and three persons. So each one is suitable for a family of four. And these are valid from February 2023 to February 2024. Four, so uh, you will get almost a year out of your national passes, and there are two of those to be given away. Those were given to us by Subaru. Uh, we had to drive through a national park at a Subaru event. They decided to just give everybody national passes. So there we go. That's the last of our giveaways, and now we can go over to the questions. Uh, oh, who gave us the Bang and uh oh the the game and Watch. i actually don't know who gave us the nintendo game and watch um that's a good question i think it might have been toyota so let's move along to some of the questions uh how do we enter here that's obviously the most important one scrolling down there at the bottom of your screen there so uh you need to email us your name your phone number and your us mailing address it has to be a us address no canadians i'm sorry there again a uh, bunch of reasons for that, but mainly cost on our side, because we are paying to ship all of these to you. Manufacturers are not doing any of the shipping. These are all collecting in my office. So to get them to you, we have to go down to the post office and buy boxes, etc. cetera. So send those three critical items to hey at autobuyersguide.com. That's our new address for questions, comments, etc. cetera. Uh, you'll get an automated reply letting you know that your submission has been received. And uh, then on the 21st, we'll literally be drawing names out of a hat. So uh, we'll uh, do that there. And uh, moving along, let's see what other questions we might have down here. What if we want an autograph from Alex or Brian? Uh, that is a good question. I don't know. I guess we could send you an autograph with your with your uh, item. So uh, if you really want one, let us know. We would be happy to do that. And uh, let's see here. Uh, Alante Fuller has said, I have my reservation in for the Blazer EV. You've been stuck between the RS and SS trims. Do you think the value is there compared to other electric vehicles? You know, I'm really intrigued by the Blazer EV and also the, um, the Equinox EV. I really want an Equinox EV for some reason. I think it's a really good size. Blazer obviously just a little bit bigger, but a lot of similar, um, design traits between these two vehicles, I love what GM has been doing design-wise with the Ultium platform, but I do have just a little bit of caution that I would throw in here. Uh, and that has been, by the time we are actually gonna see Blazer and Equinox in production, there are gonna be a lot of competitive EVs on the landscape and we won't know how they all sort out until they actually get here. Um, but the charging times of the Ultium platform vehicles has been a little slower than I had expected. And curb weight has been a little bit higher. So I'm really going to be interested to see how fuel efficiency stacks up against the competition. The Cadillac Lyric has been pretty good, but oddly enough, we haven't been able to get one in for a complete test. And I don't have any good answers as to why, other than production numbers have been kind of limited. So uh, hopefully we'll get to know more as they get a little bit closer here. So uh, let's move along here. Someone did love the socks. Uh, let's hear. Luke is saying that Subaru needs to revive the Baja to compete with the Ford Maverick in Santa Cruz. I would agree. Um, I think that Subaru, Subaru's big problem. They will tell you very upfront is production capability. They just, there's no room at the end. They don't have the factory space for this. And for reasons that I've never fully understood, their upper management in Japan seems really resistant to building a new factory. So what Subaru has been trying to do is just pack more and more and more into the same footprint, uh, either in Illinois or in Japan where they're building the current Subaru lineup. And uh, the truth of the matter is that as far as those factories go, they're operating at 100% capacity and they have been for some time. And I think they're just interested in riding the gravy train at the moment rather than trying to expand uh, that uh, that production capability to a new model. But I would say I am surprised that other car companies haven't followed them down the rabbit hole. Uh, the success of the Maverick, which has been a much bigger success than the Santa Fe, let's be honest, the success of the Maverick, I think even surprised Ford. Looking at the Maverick, driving the Maverick, even at the event, I don't know why they were surprised, but they really were surprised by the success of that particular model Um, they also didn't think that anybody was going to be interested in the hybrid model. They were anticipating relatively low sales in that model. They thought it would be kind of the, the loss leader, uh, in the lineup. And they didn't put all wheel drive on it for some of those reasons. Turns out it's the one that everybody wants. And that's the model they're really having struggles to to keep up with. Uh, moving along here. Let's see what else is coming in. Uh, no surprise. Those park passes came from Subaru. Yep. Good call there. (laughs) Uh, Let's see here. Underscore is asking, do we think waiting for a new vehicle is good? Are prices dropping? Prices do seem to be softening a little bit, uh, which is good news for new car shoppers. Availability, I think, is the big thing that we've seen improving Uh, from pretty much every corner of the automotive industry. It's going to be easier in this calendar year, especially this summer, it appears, For you to be able to find the new vehicle that you're looking for, especially if you're looking for something that is fairly mainstream. If you're looking for a RAV4, an F-150, a Silverado, uh, anything that's normally selling well over 100,000 units a year, those should be a lot easier to come by. Obviously, some exceptions included in this will be things like the Ford Maverick. That's still very hard to find. Some of the newer launches that we're going to be driving a little bit later this summer, if you want, for instance, the two and a half liter Subaru Crosstrek uh, or the Impreza RS, those might be hard to find, at least at the beginning. Also, the Corolla Cross Hybrid, that could be a little bit tricky as well. Um, Exactly when we will see some easing in those areas really is going to depend on on, uh, the production capability of those manufacturers. Here's a good question from, uh, I'm sorry if I'm butchering anybody's name here, uh, Prudvi uh, is asking, hello, Alex, is the CX-90 as good as all the YouTube reviewers say? I have was really honestly impressed in the CX-90, and I think the critical thing with the CX-90 and everybody being impressed is that we all expected to be impressed with the CX-90. So this is not a uh, mediocre rabbit pulled out of a hat. This is us expecting Mazda to pull a good rabbit out of the hat and they pulled an even better rabbit out. I think the big thing with CX-90 is that it drives well for the mainstream segment. This is not an overly sporty SUV. So this is not gonna be BMW X7M. Not there at all, not, not that kind of vehicle, but it is better handling, better feeling, better performing than average in this segment. And really right up there at the top in those categories, But also Mazda priced it really well, which is what I hadn't expected. Um, If you go back and watch the first look video where I did a walk around video on the CX-90 and I was estimating pricing, I was at least $10,000 high on most of the trims. So looking at what we get, looking at how much I thought it was going to cost, it's a really decent value, um, I have to say. Sort of tied with this one is Elliot's question here, in Mazda's quest to go premium, where does that leave the Miata since it's supposed to be affordable fun? Mazda's quest to go premium, I have to say, is a little bit head scratching because while they have said they want to go premium, they have also uh, decided to chase mainstream car companies down the pricing rabbit hole. Uh, CX-90 is a good example of this. CX-90 is starting right at about the same starting price as everybody else. And to be honest, I had expected it to be the model that started higher. I thought that the base price and base features and functions were going to be a little bit next level, at least half step up from Highlander and Pilot. That's not what we see. So for Mazda, going premium seems to be still maintaining a low base price and then really ramping up some of the features and trim that we see on the inside, but not necessarily the complete package. So disappointing things in the CX-90, for me at least, were the fact that the passenger seat doesn't have the same range of motion as the driver's seat, only two-way adjustable lumbar support, uh, things like that that you would find in, say, an Acura MDX or a Volvo XC90, which are logical direct competitors to the CX-90 on the premium side, on that very top-end side. Also, the fact that you can't get quite everything in the plug-in hybrid that you can get in the turbo s trim so mazda's decisions to try and keep the price tag from spiraling out of control uh, really left it in this interesting position where it's premium for a honda a toyota a hyundai a kia etc but it's not really premium compared to a Volvo or an Audi, the two European brands that most folks think are not quite where Mercedes and BMW is as far as uh, luxuriness, I would say, but definitely a step above what we see actually in the current Acura MDX. I think the interior is better done than the MDX. Honestly, I like the design and the parts quality of the dashboard, etc., better than we find in the current Lexus RX. Let's move over to Facebook here. Uh, Jonathan is asking us, oops, if I can pull back his comment here, which EV would you recommend for low cost, good range, fast charging, love the Bolt, but what comes closest to it? That's a good question. Um, I would say the Bolt is a solid option. It's also been selling pretty well, so you it seems that GM is interested in producing a lot of them. Um, if you want something that is a little bit roomier inside, I would suggest looking at the new Hyundai Kona EV. It should be on sale relatively soon it got decently bigger in this generation. It and the Bolt were very similar in size. In this generation, Kona grew about six inches, and almost all of that went to the back seat and the cargo area. So the back seat got way bigger. It's definitely roomier than the Bolt. A little bit bigger cargo area, definitely more practical than the Bolt's cargo area as well. And aside from that, on the low cost front, if you qualify for the tax credit, the base Model 3 is a really good deal. It got a half the tax credit back. Remember that some of the tax credit rules have recently changed. Battery production location is now a factor. So most versions of the Model 3 will get the full $7,500 tax credit. The base Model 3 only gets half the tax credit. But if you are eligible for any portion of it, that could be an excellent alternative. It's going to be very easy to live with as far as the charging network goes, et cetera. Outside of that, I would say Uh, It would be worth looking at something like a Hyundai IONIQ 5 or the Kia EV6. If you want some of the lower end trims of those, those are going to be a relatively good deal. Uh, Those charge very, very quickly. That's the big reason that I would recommend them. The IONIQ 5 and the EV6, uh, the upcoming IONIQ 6 and the EV9 as well, they charge very, very fast. They are the fastest charging uh, EVs currently in the United States. If we're talking about the 10% to 80% charge window, which is usually what uh, most folks are talking about, it's 18 minutes there. If you find the right station, it's very fast. Uh, if you want reliable uh, and predictable transportation, though, the Model 3 is definitely going to be a solid way to go. Uh, let's moving on here to uh, Jonathan Stiff. So uh, realistic, oh, we have another question here about the Equinox here. So what would the price and range on the EV Equinox be? I am going to go ahead and guess that the $39,000 price point uh, or the $30,000 price point that we have heard occasionally on that is going to be a little bit difficult for GM to achieve. I would assume that if you want a 250 to 300 mile range Equinox, it's going to be substantially similar to that same range in the Ionic 5 and the EV6. So I would say probably $45,000 or so for something in that range, especially if you want all-wheel drive. Um, we are going to be getting a less less efficient, or sorry, less uh, less powerful and smaller battery model in the Equinox than the Blazer, and that should be able to get us a lower price tag. GM has been really aggressive on their pricing. Whether they'll be able to continue that, we don't know, because some of the pricing on, on their other products have, have uh, gone up a bit, and we have definitely seen an increase in pricing across the board on a large number of EVs, um, some drops, but difficult to tell exactly how that's going to go long term. Uh, let's move down here uh, to another question here. Aaron is saying, have you seen the private seller exchange from Auto Trader uh, for selling private party cars? Uh, I have seen this one. Um, I like the theory. I'm wondering, they, they won't accept all vehicles in this program, mind you. So um, it does seem like a good way to sell a car, good way to buy a car if you want that extra level of safety involved in a transaction. But most solid or private party transactions go pretty well. It's a solid uh, market there. When you look at how many cars are sold in the U.S., it's about 45 million cars every year sold in the U.S. About 12 to 14, 000, uh, 12, sorry, 12 to 14 million of them year to year are uh, new cars. And a large portion of that used car market is private party transactions. Um, I, on the whole, although obviously private party transactions can go wrong, on the whole, they're usually pretty smooth and, and definitely easy to uh, to deal with. Uh, let's move on here. Here's a good one. Uh, Sir Cuckold III, interesting screen name there, is asking, honest thoughts on the new Accord, too boring or no? Um, I... You know, I would say that some of Honda's products, being perfectly honest here, um, some of Honda's products, yeah, have been a little bit boring. Um, I don't know if I would go as far as to say disappointing. It depends on what you expected of them. Honda's a very conservative design and engineering company. So they pretty much met my expectations on that front. Um, But Honda is really not pushing the boundaries on design or on the gadget front or on fuel efficiency with any of their new products or, or power level, let's be honest, as well. Um, the Accord is a solid, solid midsize sedan. Uh, I do find it more interesting to my eye than the Toyota Camry, its closest competitor in this segment. But I had hoped that Honda would really pull, pull something out of the bag that had, you know, maybe class leading headroom in the back, uh, you know, a huge cargo area. Maybe they would really go for a, an all hybrid lineup that's all powerful, you know, maybe 250 horsepower, something like that. And instead, we got a revised version of their existing hybrid system, uh, a body style that I think is definitely solidly attractive, but doesn't really push any boundaries as far as interior roominess, et cetera. So I do find that part a little bit uh, a little bit disappointing. Uh, now let's move along here. And uh, this is a good point. Ravi is saying he just cancels reservations for both the Chevy Blazer EV and the EX90 when he realized that the Hyundai has a $7,500 manufacturer refate for releases on the Ionic 5 and Kona EV. Uh, Yes, this is the kind of tricky thing with the IRA. So the Inflation Reduction Act that brought back the tax credits. The big thing to know about that is there's a huge gaping loophole in it. And that is that if you lease an EV, there are tax credits available if the leasing company chooses to pass those tax credits along. And that choosing part is extremely critical. So the leasing company may or may not actually get the tax credit. And this is the important thing to understand. So if I am a captive leasing arm, so say I am Ford Financial and Ford Motor Credit in this instance, because that's what they're called here. So if I'm Ford Motor Credit, you can get the $7,500 tax rebate if you actually pay taxes. And remember, not all corporations pay taxes on a regular basis. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Depends on the way they're structured uh, especially in a tiered company arrangement, where there's a parent company and lots of subdivision companies, it may make sense for the head, the primary corporation, the one at the very top of the pyramid, to be the one paying the taxes. So the way those subsidiaries roll up in this corporation, management fees are charged, et cetera. They might not actually make a tax profit. Uh, you know, they may not pay taxes in that way. If they don't, they're not going to get the tax credit. They're not going to be able to pass that tax credit on to you. So that's why it is so variable there. But if the manufacturer does, it can be a really good deal. And some of those will actually allow you to uh, you know, buy that car after the lease is over. So if you do plan on buying, you may be able to get into a good position where you lease the car, you get the credit, uh, you're obviously paying interest effectively on that lease, the deal could be decent, and then you could just buy it back afterwards uh moving along here we have pk thanks for the uh the super chat there grand cherokee l or cx90 which is better oh this is such a tricky question i found myself drawing a lot of parallels when i was at the drive event not not to say the least because uh, we have plug-in hybrids on both of these vehicles Uh, but the big thing between these two would be that the grand cherokee l is clearly the more off-road focused model the cx90 the more on-road focused model so Handling, definitely the CX-90 is better than the corresponding Grand Cherokee. Off-roading ability, Grand Cherokee blows the CX-90 away. It's got the availability of an adaptive air suspension, actual two-speed transfer cases. Um, It has locking differentials available, disconnecting sway bars, all that kind of stuff. Uh, It is much more solidly focused on off-roading. Interior space is very, very similar. The design, I would say that's really more of a matter of personal preference. The Grand Cherokee L is definitely more premium in the upper end trims, but that's because it's a lot more expensive. Um, The Grand Cherokee L is by far the most expensive mainstream, and I have to use air quotes, their mainstream three-row crossover thing, Um, and it really shows on the inside. The Laredo is kind of rubbery plastic dashboard on on the dash in the upper area, but that's the least expensive model that's trying to compete with mid-level trims of most of the competition. But by the time you get into the top end trims of Grand Cherokee, you can get up to basically eighty thousand dollars or so in that model. It is considerably more expensive than the CX ninety. You will get nicer interior bits, but keep that price tag definitely in mind. Uh, Let's move on here to uh, see we have another super chat up here. Uh, Someone is saying. I'll get back to you, Nathan, there. But someone is saying here, don't mean to bash Honda, but don't understand the logic for missing key features from popular models. I agree. This is probably my biggest complaint with Honda. Um, And I think it may have to do with some supply chain issues. It may have to do also with their desire to maximize profits, let's be honest. Um, Honda has got a decent profit margin, uh, not as high as some, but solid profitability there. And it may be that they have decided that the best thing for them to do going forward is focus on the most profitable trims. And if you want these features, let you shop elsewhere. Um, Honda sales, though, could be a bit better. Let's be honest. Pilot has not exactly been blowing up the market here sales wise. Accord has been sliding as well, and CRV may be the best selling C- crossover of all time but it's certainly not the best-selling crossover in 2023. That would definitely solidly be the RAV4. And I think that part of the reason the RAV4's sales success is there is because they are giving you all of those extra themes. You, you want a plug-in hybrid, there's one. You want a hybrid, there's one of those. You want an off-roady one, there's one of those. You want a torque vectoring rear axle, sure, hey, why not? Um, and we don't see that same level of variation in the CRV, uh, just to use that as an example. So logically, the the... The, the spectrum of shoppers that's going to be interested in it is narrower than we find um, in a Rav four, um, and I think that's the big reason that that we've seen some of those sales shrinking. while they've been chasing other priorities, so I do think that's a bit of a bummer. But you know, unfortunately, it seems to be the way that it is. Uh, thanks, Ramu, for the uh, the super chat there, and uh, let's go ahead here. Uh, CRV outsold the Rogue by in Q one. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's actually not too surprising. The Rogue was really neck and neck with the RAV4 for a while there. Um, it seems to be that the CRV Rogue crossover at that point was CRV's production ramping up for the new model, trailing off for the old model, and then Nissan Rogue having a few more discounts on the hood than we saw in CRV. I would be surprised if Rogue outsold it for more than a quarter or two here. Um, I do like the rogue. I think it's a solid entry. In fact, I probably would buy a rogue before I bought the CRV in this generation unless you really want the hybrid. The hybrid is a definite reason to buy it. Um, but that's not seemingly where the majority of customers in this segment are as far as which model they prefer. Uh, let's see here. Let's move along here.. Uh, Thanks for the super chat Here is asking, I currently own a 2017 IS300 to find car. I want something more fun, speed, that has car play. Think you've traded in. What would you recommend? Uh, interesting. Uh, willing to dabble around in the used car market. Um, IS300. I always liked the IS's driving nature. So I would say if you want a vehicle that drives like the IS drives, you might want another IS. Um, the, the steering rack... Lexus does a really good job with steering tuning. Um, That's probably the best thing about the IS lineup. If you drive an IS and a 3 Series and a C-Class back-to-back-to-back, I would take the steering rack of the IS every day. The problem's always been that the interior is not quite as premium as some of the others. The engine's not quite as powerful as some of the others. uh, But pure driving enjoyment, the IS does really quite well. And I know this is probably going to be unusual, but I'm actually a little sad that the tiny little V6 they had forever uh, is dead because that was a great little engine, Uh, reliable, you know, interesting and and entertaining. Um, I would suggest taking a look at a BMW 3 Series. That's obviously the benchmark. It's the easy, easy answer in this segment. Um, If you are looking to go somewhere slightly different, there's also the 3 Series plug-in hybrid, the Volvo S60 plug-in hybrid. Uh, the S60 gets a tax credit in the U.S., interestingly enough, if you get the plug-in hybrid, because it's actually made in the U.S. Um, it's not going to drive like an IS. It's a different kind of driving experience, um, but it does have CarPlay. It's definitely easy to live with as well. Um, and you have the plug-in hybrid capability with a crazy amount of power, which is the weird thing um, about the uh, the S60. Lots Lots of power in that plug-in hybrid system. Uh, Moving back here, someone was asking us about the Outlander, and I'm sorry if I have lost you in this chain here about the Outlander, and then we will move on to uh, Priusing. Um, So Outlander, I am really torn on it. I like the interior. It's comfortable. Uh, I think the interior is excellently designed. Um, I am not offended by the exterior design. I like the rear end design. The front end takes some getting used to, but I'm not overly offended by it. The weird thing with the Outlander is there's really very little Mitsubishi going on here. Even the Mitsubishi logo is basically made by Nissan. <laughs> um, and so this is basically a Nissan Mitsubishi thing. And all of the Nissan bits are great, honestly. And this is why I also like the Rogue. The Rogue is comfortable. It's attractive inside. Um, the full LCD instrument clusters, really quite nicely done. Uh, I wish the infotainment system was a little bigger, but you know I'm, I'm good with the size of the screen. Um, easy to live with. I like the tiny third row. Yes, it is ridiculously small, but I still like the fact that it has one. Now, on the downside, there are a decent number of things that I would change. I wish the third row was removable. I think that would be a really unique feature if you could insert it and remove it when you don't need it, because I don't need it most of the time, but it would be handy to have it. And it would be handy to get that cargo space back because without the third row, it would be probably the largest cargo area in this segment. Um, The driving characteristics of the Outlander plug in hybrid are also not my cup of tea. Um, This is where I diverge from... Some of the people out there that I know in the industry, I recently saw a a review from someone that was like, this is the best Outlander ever. And I was like, "Uh, have you driven the two back to back? Because if you do drive the two back to back, you will notice that the plug in hybrid definitely feels heavy in the rear and the suspension motions in the back are not as well controlled as they are in the, uh, in the non-hybrid model. And that's simply down to the added weight of the hybrid system. And then lastly, there's the efficiency of the hybrid system. It is only 26 miles per gallon rated once the battery has been depleted. The electric range is decent and the all-wheel drive system performs well because it's a fairly well-balanced dual motor setup. So those are solid. But then if you take that longer road trip, you're going to be burning considerably more gasoline than really just about any plug-in hybrid outside of some very, very exotic plug-in hybrids out there. Uh, Thoughts on GM removing CarPlay and Android Auto? I think that is a big mistake, personally. But I can see where GM is coming from. If you want the user to always use your system in the dashboard to calculate charging stops, things like that, then, yeah, uh, forcing them into your native system makes an awful lot of sense. If, on the other hand, you care about user interface quality, then you probably want Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. They have been much more responsive to the average user's feedback. I mean, so many more people have, I don't even have my phone on me, but now I feel naked. Um, so many more people have an, an iPhone or an Android phone on them, and they like that interface. They're familiar with it. And so going back to a system that's not like that when you get in your car, I think is more distracting. So, you know, you're familiar with this interface. The car interface bears a great deal of resemblance to that. So it's going to take less thought time uh, to interact with it. It's going to feel more natural. I think it's a big mistake. I would not be surprised if they backtracked on that a little bit, Um, whether or not they do. I don't know. I think the solution to GM's problem would be working with Google and Apple to get the information to the device. So that way you can have the device do charge routing and preconditioning integration, things like that. Um, You know, this is an interesting point here, uh, Ravi. So I, I don't think that this is a valid thought on GM's front because general motors actually hoovers up so much more info Than Other companies do. Um, You know, you have a one year subscription to OnStar and GM is known for sucking up a lot of car information from OnStar. And so they're getting lots of data from every person that has a brand new GM vehicle for a decent period of time. And, uh, you know, if you're a privacy concerned person, that's that's a bigger concern, I would say, than than CarPlay or Android Auto. And it is worth noting Apple actually sucks up less info than Android Auto. So if you're at all concerned about that, then you should know that um, apparently Android Auto uh, sucks up more data like uh, RPM gear that the transmissions in things like that. Uh, and Apple has. Obviously, takes location and speed data up, but a little bit less than than the other side. Uh, let's see here. What's the best hybrid or plug-in hybrid? Thirty-five thousand dollars for someone six foot tall. Um, I would say on the hybrid front, uh, the new Corolla Cross is actually quite roomy and very efficient. Um, in fact, its efficiency was really quite shocking. We averaged about fifty miles per gallon on a relatively long test loop that included elevation. Um, and some uh, higher speed runs. I was very impressed by that. Out on the open highway at, say, 70 to 75 miles an hour, it's going to be closer down to the 40-some-odd mile-per-gallon rating. But that's still very impressive for a vehicle in that segment that's pretty roomy inside. Also, the Kia Niro is pretty roomy inside. Outside of that, it seems like we're not as not getting as many hybrids as we once had in the U.S. So those would probably be my, my two go-to uh, suggestions there. Plug-in hybrid, it's going to be harder to get into that $35,000 price point, but the Prius Prime uh, is not too far off, and the fuel economy there is definitely very, very good. Uh, let's move on to the Super Chats here again. Vinay, let's see, your best manual transmission car under 50000 and take on the Acura Type S. I'm guessing you mean Integra Type S, because uh, there are now three of them. Uh, so let's start with the manual transmission cars under 50000 Not too many of them anymore. Um, I do love a manual and I like Honda's manual transmission shifter, but I'm not the biggest fan of the clutch engagement on the latest Hondas. Um, I would say under $50,000, the, the Volk's the few Volkswagens that you can get with a manual transmission in the world would be a solid option. Um, the Integra does actually still have a solid feel, I would say, um, And uh, the GR GR Corolla is fantastic. And you get all-wheel drive, which is something that you don't get uh, in the Civic Type R, which I think is a bit of a bummer. Um, On the Integra Type S, my biggest complaint is that they're not giving it a dual-clutch transmission. And in that segment, it is a novelty that there's a manual, and that's cool for people that want a manual, but statistically, shoppers want an automatic. Um, And it also means that the Integra Type S is quite simply going to be slower 0 to 60, uh, if that's something that you care about versus really any of its direct competitors there. Uh, moving along here, this is kind of half question, half comment. Big Japanese brands are lagging behind in the EV race. Do you think they will catch up with the rest of the world or are they facing falling demand as EVs take over? I I would say that the death of Toyota and Honda is pretty exaggerated on this front. EVs still account for a very small segment of automotive sales in the US and Toyota sales have been very healthy. So Toyota's delay on the EV front, I don't think has cost them anything. In fact, it most likely has saved them money because even if they were to start an EV push now, That EV push is likely less expensive than had that EV push started five years ago. So on a purely dollars and cents front, it's probably logical that Toyota has done this. Will it cause any long-term brand harm? That's a more difficult question to answer. Um, You know, this is not, I have to preface this by saying this is not a defense of Toyota. This is just a pure nuts and bolts, like dollars and cents thought process here um because i do not buy the philosophy that that toyota's choosing the more environmental path with some of their choices um and here's where i have to divorce some things that i have said from toyota's side so i firmly believe that if if we thought as a as a population as a global community that car emissions were bad um and we need to do something about them then i do agree with akio toyota that the right thing to do is to push hybrids first push plug in hybrids second then after everything has transitioned in those phases go to full evs the Problem with Toyota is that if they truly believed in this, then everything they made would be a hybrid and they would be focusing on fuel economy. And that's not what we see from Toyota. Um, Toyota's, you know, spending money on GR Corollas and they're spending money on really inefficient trucks and SUVs. And they have the batteries. We have the batteries in America today. Toyota has the capability today to make the vast majority of their lineup full hybrid, high efficiency, high efficiency. Absolutely. Right now, today, Um, the RAV4 could be an entirely hybrid lineup. Everybody gets a RAV4, could be getting 40 miles per gallon and coincidentally having the lower cost to own vehicle and the more reliable vehicle in that segment. But that is not what Toyota has chosen to do. So there's that. Um, But will it cause that? Will it cause a problem long term for them? I just uh, don't believe so at this point in time. Uh, The average, average customer out there. Uh, is just starting to wake up to maybe I'll buy an EV next time. And I think that in that that uh, construct, Toyota's fine. Also, very strangely, uh, in customer survey after customer survey, a large percentage of people that are not really in the industry actually think that Toyota makes lots of EVs. Um, and that's that's been a thing that for the last few years, when you look at some of these surveys that Cox Automotive and other automotive survey companies have done, people will actually say yeah you know there's there's an ev toyota ev that i'm shopping for and um they they haven't made one so that's a problem uh let's see here uh let's see here would you and sophie ever start a channel dedicated to road trips imagine the shenanigans uh i don't know that's an interesting question i used to like road trips um i don't know if i'm road trip material anymore and maybe you know Sound off if you're over 40. hate to say that down there in the comment section. Um, but are you into road trips anymore? Were you? Are you now? Like, has this uh, has this changed your opinion of the road trip? Actually, better yet, email us at hey at autobuyersguide.com. That same address you see scrolling along down there at the bottom of your screen. Um, and let us know if you like the road trip, if it's dead to you, etc., um, I think the problem for me is that if you live in uh, in Northern California, you know, we call it Northern California, but half of California is still up north and uh, it's a long way out. So to go to Los Angeles is four and a half hours and it's very boring on I-5. Uh, you know, to go to Arizona is is you know nine hours from here. So I would rather just fly at this point in my life and flights have gotten cheaper. So that's less of a concern to me. Um, In fact, when I think about it, I haven't owned a car that left the state of California in about 20 years. So there's that. Um, Drew's asking here, uh, doesn't understand why car company car companies when they cancel certain options due to low sales uh, when it's the dealers who purchase the models mix. Yes. This is an interesting catch 22. Um, In the United States, for people that aren't here, uh, or if you haven't thought about this, the vast majority of cars in the U.S. are sold from lot inventory. So the dealers order cars based on what they think customers will be interested in. So there's a multi-level issue here. So dealers think, well, my customers in my area, my demographic they would be interested in X, Y, and Z. And I need to be able to make sure they don't hang out too long. We got to move the metal. So that's what I'm going to order. Um, and then therefore, the manufacturer builds to these orders and these sales trends uh, over time. In Europe and other countries, it's it's very different. Typically, cars are purchased as orders. So uh, while orders do happen in the US, it's a relatively small percentage of the sales mix. And there, it kind of makes sense that the cars are, are done in this way. Um, What I have always thought would be a more logical answer here would be for mainstream companies to operate more like luxury car companies with some of these options that there are, you know, dealer order only options. And if you want that option, that trim, that whatever, then it's going to be priced at a premium and you'll have to order the vehicle. Um, The tricky thing with that sort of model is that you still have to warrant and inventory the parts for that specific trim. So say it's a different bumper. You have to have that bumper in the various different supply warehouses around the U S for warranty work, for collision work, paint color, same sort of thing. You have to have paint color inventories. It also occupies some space in the factory to, to deal with these things and production issues. I don't think it's insurmountable. My answer to this has always been charge appropriately for it. Um, and that's part of why we see, for instance, the Korean car companies have sort of the uh, the kitchen sink option package uh, that's becoming pretty popular on their models. And I think that's a really great idea. It's, you know, uh, if you want that extra feature, it's in the everything package. And sorry, you just have to get it all because that does streamline the inventory and it allows them to do that Uh And that I think is something that other car companies could pick up on. I think the worst at this is Honda at the moment, Honda has decided, Nope. If you, if you don't want the four different trims of this and the six different colors of this, then too bad. That is the only way that it comes. No, no, with the plug, et cetera, there's no, no different trim levels. You can't choose to get this trim with a hybrid or a non-hybrid. It's that's just the only way that it comes. So that is a little bit tricky there. Um, Let's move on here. I'm not sure uh, if we actually got uh, got everything out here on the Outlander Plug-in Hybrid. So I'll think I'll just go over the uh, the negatives that I had before. You let me know if the positives got uh, got uh, you know cut off there by our, our earlier audio issue. But on the uh, the negative side with the Outlander Plug-in Hybrid, fuel efficiency is obviously the biggest problem. Again, 26 miles per gallon is the EPA rating. Uh, At highway speeds, because it's a serial hybrid system, for the most part, it does have a parallel mode that can engage, but it does spend a lot of time um, in uh, in, uh, serial hybrid mode at higher speeds. The fuel efficiency is definitely a bummer. You know, 25 to 26 miles per gallon is what we've been getting uh, after repeated repeated test loops in it when the battery is not charged. And that is the important thing. So if you want to do this testing yourself, if you have uh, a plug-in hybrid of any description, uh, make sure you drive it around. Let the battery get completely depleted, then reset your trip computer stuff, do a a regular drive loop and see what you get. Uh, And in this kind of testing, if you have a RAV4 hybrid, you will be getting about 40 miles per gallon. Uh, If you have a Tucson or a Sportage hybrid, you'll be getting right around 38, 39 miles per gallon, depending on the drive cycle. Very consistent fuel economy with those models and very similar to their regular hybrid versions. In the Outlander, because of its plug-in hybrid design, the fuel efficiency is really right down there around the EPA rating, which is why the EPA rating is is there. Um, it's right around 25, 26 miles per gallon. So that is definitely the problem. If you never plug it in, then it's not much of a, or sorry, if you never uh, drive it without plugging it in, then it's not too much of a problem. But on the other hand, you could still have purchased a more efficient plug-in hybrid. Now, pricing is definitely very good on the Outlander, which is part of the reason that we chose it over the Sorrento plug-in hybrid, the Sorrento plug-in hybrid is probably the the closest thing you can get with decent range, all wheel drive and three rows of seating. Um, But the Outlander actually has a three person second row, which is a bit more useful than the six person seating that we find in the Sorrento, even though the Sorrento has a bigger third row. Um, But the Sorrento gets considerably better fuel economy, 33 miles per gallon. So that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. Um, Matt is saying he loves his Subaru Crosstrek plug-in hybrid. I'm interested to see if they bring back another Subaru Crosstrek plug-in hybrid because that that hybrid system costs a lot of money to develop, and it is really quite novel. The blending of Subaru's engine with Toyota's transmission design uh, is really a cool touch in that one, and I wish they would put that on everything in their lineup uh, because that is really a rock-solid hybrid system. Whether or not we will get more of that, I don't know is the tricky bit. Um, Subaru is partially owned by Toyota. They own a a decent share of Subaru. And that's why there is this parts sharing back and forth between the two car companies. Um, Whether or not that spawns more models like that, we don't know because Subaru does go off and develop their own plug-in hybrid system and their own hybrid system for other markets here and there. Um, uh, Whether or not we will ever get those systems in the US, we don't know. But uh, I, say, I would say that I prefer the hybrid system that they jointly developed with Toyota uh, more. Um, and uh, exactly how much was Subaru and how much was Toyota on the development side, we don't know. But the internals, the battery, the controllers, the, all of that is 100% Toyota, uh, which is definitely an asset actually on the reliability side. So it's not a, not a bad thing at all. Uh, PK is asking when we are going to be getting Highlander pricing. That is a good question. Something that I've been wondering since I'm going to be driving it in maybe about three weeks or so, I am going to guess that you won't get pricing until we've driven it. So that's probably going to be right around May, uh, May 10th, somewhere around there, 10th to the 15th, somewhere in that range. Um, and uh, my guess is that it's going to be within the pricing envelope of the regular Highlander, uh, maybe offset a little bit, so maybe three to $4,000 more of a premium for the bigger model. Um, someone's asking about Defender, Defender 90, been thinking of trading the Defender for a 2016 Tacoma or, oh, and both of them for a Rivian R1S. Um, I am torn. I'm really hoping that we can get an R1S in here for review. There are definitely some solid reasons to get the R1S. Um, If you're looking for an honest to goodness usable third row, it's one of the few. Um, EV9 is actually a little bit better, I think, in the third row space than R1S. But the R1S third row is definitely better light years ahead of the Model Y. Uh, it is less expensive than the Model X, also I think has a more comfortable, more usable interior uh, than the Model X as well. I'm not the biggest fan of the way the seats move in the Model X. Um, it also is off, obviously very off-road capable and pretty quick. The downside is that Rivian hasn't done too much to address the Vampire draw issues on the Rivian lineup, and that includes R1T and R1S both. So if you leave your vehicle parked uh, in a parking lot all by itself for a week or two, you will notice very significant battery loss uh, over that time period. Uh, We have a video on the EV Buyer's Guide channel where you can check that out because my my memory is a little bad on the numbers here, but it was over 20% battery loss. It's well more than 1% a day, let's put it that way. So it'd be pretty easy to go away for a month long trip, depending on how far, how long it takes you to get to the airport. And if you can't plug it in at the airport, for you to actually have really very little battery power when you get back, either nothing or definitely a stop at a DC fast charge station. And In that instance, I wish that it charged faster than it does. Um, That's something that they may or may not be able to fix over time. Um, Tesla has definitely worked hard on their vampire drain issues. But in the earlier cars, that was something that was not well addressed longer term. So it took hardware revisions to fix these things in modern Teslas. And it may require the same kind of hardware revision over time in the Rivian lineup. We'll have to see how that really goes. Uh, Jason's asking here: Acura MDX uh, or CX 90 Turbo S only seven seat option? Uh, why? Oh yeah, because the right, yeah, because the uh, the six seat option uh, is a bit of a problem. I'm not sure why Mazda decided to limit the seating configuration in the top end trim either, but that is a consideration if you're looking there. Um, I, it probably is simply sales volume in in that vehicle. They expect it to be a relatively small percentage of sales. I would get the CX-90. I think the interior is more attractive. Um, I think the infotainment system for all of its faults is easier to use than the one in the Acura MDX. Um, And it definitely drives a little bit better than the MDX. The MDX definitely has a fun driving nature to it. And it does have adaptive dampers if you get the Type S version. I notice you're only looking at the A-Spec though. Um, So that would actually lead me more towards CX-90. The... CX-90, one big thing to keep in mind is that they're all either hybrid or they're plug-in hybrid. So be sure that you drive it, spend a decent amount of time in stop-and-go and, and slow-and-go traffic, and be very comfortable with the way that transmission behaves. Um, since it does not have a torque converter, it is never going to be as smooth as a transmission with a torque converter. It's a big, big thing to keep in mind. Uh, big shout-out to the person that just gave us another super chat here, Match6. Uh, sorry, uh, March 6. Let's go ahead here with your question. I purchased a BZ4X all-wheel drive limited. Love it. Winter charging was super rough. Had best charge yesterday 83 kilowatts. Any chance you'll do any more reviews, including charging in the future on these? No of anybody's software updates uh, coming to the US. Uh, Yep. Hopefully we will be getting our hands on the BZ4X here soon for a more complete review. The big reason that we haven't been able to get it is because of the recall on the wheels. And Toyota said that they were limited in parts, and so they decided not to update the press fleet right away with the vehicles with the swapped in wheels, which is also why we don't have a Subaru Solterra because the Solterra somehow it took them a lot longer to get the fix and they're still waiting for uh, parts even for customers. So that's a definitely an important thing to keep in mind if you're interested in the Solterra. Um, Yeah, on the charge curve on the BZ4X, it is frankly disappointing and there's no, no way around that. It's just the way that it is. I would expect that over time, Toyota may issue software updates to speed that up because the main reason they limited the charging speed in the BZ4X is their desire for battery longevity. Um, That that particular model has a CATL battery pack, so different chemistry than in the front-wheel drive model. Depending on where you buy the BZ4X and the Solterra in the world, they'll have different battery packs. Um, For this particular model, they use a CATL Chinese-built battery pack, and that battery has some solid characteristics as far as battery lifetime, um, battery crash performance, etc. is all very good in that battery pack, but the downside is charging speed. Um, And the other thing to know is that charging speed is actually not that much faster in other vehicles that use CATL packs. So, if you, for instance, buy a base Model 3, it uses a CATL pack, and it charges much slower than every other Tesla model. Still faster than the Toyota, though. So there's still definitely room for improvement on that charging speed. Um, whether or not we'll see the improvement, we we don't know. So we'll see how that goes over time. Uh, moving along here, let's go and grab another uh, question here from Facebook here. Um, Plug-in hybrid Crosstrek with at least 40 miles EV and ventilated seat. Good for suburban living, going out for the trailheads. Yeah, I have to agree. And I'm really going to be interested to see how Subaru does uh, does this with the next Crosstrek. Lots of rumors have been pointing to it just being a, a hybrid rather than the plug-in hybrid, but we'll see how that goes. Um, so, Rebecca, thanks for watching here. So in position of needing a new car right now, Uh, My next vehicle will be an EV, probably an Aria or Equinox. Thoughts on whether there are advantages to waiting a year uh, versus now? That's a good question. We have not had really good visibility on EV pricing trends lately. Uh, They have been absolutely all over the map and bonkers all over the map, especially when we take a look at Tesla's pricing, which is much more responsive to market conditions because there's no dealer involved in there. And uh, they just feel the feel free to change the pricing for practically any amount at any time. So it's going up and it's going down. It's going up, going down, etc. Um, commodity pricing is not getting less expensive. Largely, uh, I would say in the short term, with with uh, lithium packs, we have seen a short term rise in commodity pricing um, that is likely to continue if we continue to see. Constraints on EV production capability. So if we, if we see that demand maintain is high for EVs and production is where things are constrained, those battery costs are likely to remain high. If we see a softening in EV demand, a softening in EV sales, then prices may actually go back down a bit. Simple market dynamics there. Um, but I would generally say in the short term, a year out, prices are not going to change too much. Uh, I would probably go with the Aria uh, if you can get a good deal, especially. You might want to wait maybe a few months at least on the Aria because they're still filling initial orders. After those are filled, we may actually see Arias start hanging out on dealer lots. Um, I like the Aria a lot. I think that it was a little bit late to market. And by the time it got here, it seems a little expensive. So no tax credit on it. If you lease it, you may be able to get a tax credit. Nissan is still working out some of the details on that front, so that may come in the future. Um, it is very comfortable. I like the way the interior is done. I really like the blue interior in the all-wheel drive model, especially that I was driving last. Um, so at the moment, I think I like its design and feel a little bit better than the Equinox. Um the Equinox is going to charge a little bit faster, but not a great deal faster as far as DC fast charging. There's some quirky decisions with the ARIA and the, the time frame that it came to market. AC charging is also a little bit slower than I would like. Um, but I think that it's we're going to have to wait to see how some of the things sort out um, in the next year or so. Now let's see here. Move on. Uh, any ideas on wireless charging in the USA? Uh, So this is this is an interesting question, Ramu. So the wireless charging initiatives that we've seen really have been spearheaded by Genesis and a few other car companies. The big thing with them is they're all very early prototype systems. I don't believe we're going to see wireless charging too soon in the U.S. for EVs. There are a few reasons for that. The first one is charging speed. Um, most of these wireless chargers operate a little bit slower than the AC level 2 charge connector. so no DC fast charging speeds with with wireless charging. The second reason is efficiency. You are always going to lose, a decent amount of power when you're wireless charging. If you're wireless charging your earbuds or your iPhone or your Android phone, this isn't too big of an issue because it's only going to use 20 watts and you know maybe you only get 16 watts on the phone side, even though you're putting 20 watts in, not a big deal. But when we're talking about a car charging 10,000 watts and you're losing 10% of that, or even 20% if you're not well aligned... That's a lot of power that's going missing in this equation. And so wireless charging is going to cost you more to charge your car uh, on a daily basis. And it's going to cost you the extra to have the wireless charging infrastructure put in in the first place, which is not cheap. So I'm a little bit down on the wireless charging from a pragmatic standpoint here. It would be very easy. And I do like that thought of having an option that is easy to to adapt to Um, having this coil under your car for wireless charging in the same consistent spot in every vehicle, vehicle after vehicle, after vehicle, especially in vehicles with various ground clearances, that is a little bit trickier. Um, There's a lot of talk about, you know, electric raising or lowering wireless charging mats that it would come down or go up from the vehicle, et cetera. Uh, you know, they're, those are interesting, but I don't think it's overly rational from a cost and reliability standpoint. So that's a bit of a problem. Uh, follow up here from Rebecca, local Nissan dealers advertising full $700 lease cash. So in that instance, then I would say rock on with the Aria, uh, especially the all-wheel drive Aria. I do like the all-wheel drive model. Uh, so let's see here. Let's go back to Drew here. Uh, any upcoming car reviews and tests, we have a bunch of things coming up. We have a little bit of a break here. So you're going to see Brian a little bit more on the channel this next week as we start uh, trying to flush out some videos here. We have a uh, Lincoln Aviator plug-in hybrid that I recently filmed. Uh, we're going to have a follow-up video on the Outlander plug-in hybrid and the Dodge Durango that we have long-term. And then we're going to go dive right back into a whole host of new e- new vehicles that we're uh, driving at uh, launch events here and there and everywhere. Uh, We also have an upcoming video on uh, third rows compared. So we basically went around auto shows and we sat in every vehicle that has a third row uh, to basically divine the best third row in America. And uh, I surprised myself by figuring out that uh, after back-to-back testing with multiple people that uh, indeed actually the Grand Wagoneer and Wagoneer have the best third row in America. It's not actually a minivan anymore. So that was kind of a surprise because I fully expected it to be one of the minivan competitors. Uh, Let's see here, Aaron, uh, here on the Ridgeline, you know, a lot of indications have pointed to the Ridgeline being a minor refresh. I hope that that's wrong, but, um, you know, we haven't seen anything yet, and I would have expected us to see some pretty decent prototypes rolling around uh, by now if we were actually going to get a complete redesign. So, um, don't know on that one yet. Uh, let's moving on here to uh, Dawn. Uh, what is it with Hyundai dealers and markups? Um, you know, let's be honest, dealer markups really are just a market condition thing. So Honda's Hyundai is rolling high right now. Um, Hyundai, the Hyundai Kia Motor Group has had the best sales year ever last year worldwide. Um, and even though there were minor sales up and down here and there in the US and some other places worldwide, this was the best year. So every Hyundai and Kia factory is. Is uh, absolutely going full tilt, and that means that it's a shop, a seller's market, and uh, the dealers are the weak link in the chain where they're going to be doing that seller's market, you know, adjustment there for you. Um, and it's just unfortunately the cost of doing business if you want that particular Hyundai model. Um, I would say. Be careful with these dealers. Um, You know, if a dealer wants to charge any markup at all, I find any markup unacceptable personally. So if a dealer wants to charge you even a dollar, I would say, honest answer, say no. Go online, Google for the dealer that will sell it to you with no ADM because dealers exist out there. Every dealer out there, every car company out there rather, has at least one dealer in the United States that will sell you a car with no dealer markup. And I would rather have a road trip to the dealer or pay for shipping from that dealer to me uh, to just escape that, that markup. And in most areas of the United States, you can order a car from some dealer outside the U.S., and then you can originally title it in the state that you're in. You can even get a manufacturer car loan on it, lease, etc. It doesn't matter. They don't care. You know, it's going to a different state. So that's definitely uh, what I would do there. Uh, Nathan's asking a good question here about the Ram 1500 and when the new turbo six is going to come out. We all know that it's happening Uh, when exactly it's happening. We don't know for sure, but I would not be surprised if exactly what we saw in the Ram rev as far as the interior refresh is going to be accompanied by some new turbo engines. For a perhaps late 2024 debut, something like that, or an early 2025. Whether or not we get a 2024 model year Ram 1500 that is not changed, that is is what's up in the air right now. But we essentially all know that uh, that the uh, the inline six is going to come, and the uh, the updates that we found inside the Ram 1500 Rev are going to come to the regular model here soon. So um, if you don't like those, then you probably you know want to look somewhere else or you want to get one now. If you really, really want a V8 engine in your next Ram 1500, you're probably also going to want to act pretty quick um, because we all know that that uh, that era is drawing to a close. Um, I would not be surprised, though, if you could end up with the V8 sticking around for some trims. In uh, in the Ram 1500, Um, it has been pretty popular and the Wrangler is still getting the 6.4 liter Hemi V8. Um, If fuel economy was high enough in that inline six, and if we get a plug in hybrid Ram 1500, um, then it may actually give Stellantis enough room to for the first time ever drop that 64 into a Ram 1500, which could be uh, be kind of an interesting twist. Uh, so this is a good point on shipping and buying from another dealer, but it's also worth researching because a lot of dealers have arrangements with shipping companies. So the last time that we looked into this and, uh, and almost pulled the trigger before we ended up finding a local dealer to, to do a, Uh, a vehicle uh, at cost uh, or at MSRP, not at cost, I should say, just all we wanted was no markup, uh, was the Ford Lightning. And we had been working with a dealer in uh, Detroit to get a Lightning. And the shipping from Detroit here to California was only $700 because of the arrangements that dealer had with shipping companies. So uh, you might want to research that a bit more in your local area Uh, with dealers or or research with dealers that are out there that do lots of shipping. Um, If, for instance, you talk to, for instance, you're looking for a Toyota, the largest Toyota dealer in the United States is in Southern California. They do a lot of shipping. So they have a lot of shipping arrangements with shipping companies. And as I understand it, someone that recently reported buying a car from them, the shipping cost was, was well under $1,000. So it can definitely be useful, especially if you're looking for something that would normally have a larger ADM on it. If you can get them to order or sell you one, something like that, and then ship it to you, you could still save a reasonable amount of money even after paying for shipping. Uh, let's see here. Uh Here we go. Uh, Henry is asking, oh, this is a good one. I'm surprised that more people haven't actually been asking this question. Um, How much do you, uh, what do we think about the Hyundai and Kia thefts uh, and how much has it hurt their brands? This is an interesting question. Um, It doesn't seem to have hurt their sales at all. Um, And here is the interesting, here's the key thing to know about, I would say about the Hyundai and Kia ease of stealing car thing. This is not unique to Hyundai and Kia. So the Hyundai and Kias are not, in fact, easier to steal than a comparable car from a comparable car company. The key thing with, with especially the models that have been stolen is that in this time period at Hyundai and Kia, if you were in the U.S. looking for an, an inexpensive car, bare bones basic car, Hyundai and Kia really were selling the vast majority of these vehicles. Think base Kia Soul, Kia Rio, Hyundai Accent, um, base versions of the Elantra, etc., uh, the Forte, those th- four sorts of things. Very low sticker prices. And in fact, they were really, really cheap. But the reason they were cheap is because they were cheap. And and the car companies just did not include some of these key features that we find in more expensive vehicles or most vehicles today. This was sort of the time period where engine immobilizers would still have added some dollars to the car. And those manufacturers, what they chose to do was basically borrow wholesale, the interior and electronics from South American market vehicles. So if you take a look at, for instance, the Kia Forte um, in, I think actually was this generation might've been the previous generation, but basically they, they took the, in the base version, they took the interior, the electronics, the wiring harnesses, the radios, the dashboard modules, all of that was taken wholesale out of a South American market Kia car jammed into the North American market one, those components just did not accept engine immobilizers. They did not have them. And that's what makes those cars easy to steal. Now, if you were buying a cheap car at that time, they were all in the same boat. So the cheapest Fords of the time, the cheapest Chevys of the time, very, very similar kind of flaw in those vehicles. Um, They just didn't have the TikTok push showing you how to do it. So that's, that's the key difference there um moving off here to Noah a fellow off-gridder oh hey there's, there's one on here uh someone has a mini mini countryman SE all 4 would love to get 20 miles of EV range and a bit more off-road capability i would suggest on the plug-in hybrid front currently um i would suggest strongly looking at um at some of the Hyundai and Kia plug-in hybrids. The main reason there would be we have true all-wheel drive. So it's a mechanical all-wheel drive system, just like the regular model. And we have the plug-in capability and decent uh, fuel efficiency after the plug-in hybrid capability has been consumed. Um, So especially in an off-grid situation like you live in and like I live in, It's important that that you have that high efficiency backup plan. Otherwise, you're consuming just as much fuel as you would have uh, with a, you know, with a lower efficiency non hybrid out there. Uh, And that's kind of my complaint with the Outlander plug in hybrid. If if I'm driving it in the winter, theoretically, and I can't charge it at home, then I'm actually burning more fuel than I would in a Nissan Rogue with a CVT. Because even though part of my trip is on electricity, half of it's not. And that half that's not is not overly efficient. So that's probably where I would go. Depending on your need for all wheel drive capability, obviously the RAV4 Prime is an excellent option. The key thing with the RAV4 Prime is that it's still really hot. So uh, getting your hands on one can be pretty tricky. Uh, let's move on to the Lexus TX. When's it going to be revealed? We don't have any good details on this. The ob- Obviously, Lexus isn't going to admit to anything. But if you want to know what the TX is likely going to be like, then just check out the video on the Grand Highlander when uh, that video comes out later in May because it's basically going to be the same thing. Um the uh, only differences are likely to be I that I would not be surprised if the hybrid system and the hybrid Max system got a bit more power in the TX and if the base turbo engine was not available. So that's could be where we would see that going. Um, let's go on here to uh, the question that no one can really answer, Luma. So lots of people have had... Um, estimates or guesstimates as to what they mean. Lexus usually doesn't say. There have been some rumors about this. LS was luxury sedan. IS, inexpensive sedan, etc. You know, uh, I don't know how much faith I put in any of those. Let's put it that way. Uh, And here's a good question, Digital Wolf. Yes, Kia is bringing EV6 owners preconditioning, and it is currently available via a dealer software update. So there is a technical service bulletin you can uh go to your Kia dealer ask them about it uh if they can't if they don't know about it or can't find it you can google it bring it to them um but there is a software update for ev6 preconditioning um and there's even some sort of soft kooky software workaround that you can do yourself using a native pro- uh, an internal programming mode in the instrument cluster, or sorry, the infotainment system, uh, to actually uh, enable that. So uh, you can hunt around for that as well if you want to do that, and uh, you know not not follow the rules. But there is one available from your dealer already, and uh, that is going to apply to the EV6, uh, but not the Nero EV. So Nero EV is not getting preconditioning. Ionic Five will also get it. Um, the uh ionic six will have it from the factory um and uh here kb is asking about all-wheel drive models with the battery heater the software update appears to only be for models with the battery heater but keep in mind that every ev6 does heat the battery the battery heater is a specific separate unit for more direct battery heating but every EV6, every EGMP platform vehicle can heat the battery using the coolant loop as well. It just doesn't heat the battery as directly and as, as quickly as the battery heating mat uh, that we find in that model. So there is a bit of a twist there. Um, the engineers have said that battery preconditioning is possible without the battery heater mat. Whether or not we will ever see that happen is something of a different question. So, um, you know, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Last question here. We'll go for this one last. So sorry to anybody that is uh, still watching here, but is formulating a question. This is our last one of the day. Uh, Favorite three row SUV, including EVs. Um, There are a decent number of solid three row SUVs out there. I mean, just uh, no price tag involved. What is the best third row out there? It would be the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. The third row is very roomy. Lots of headroom. The seat bottom cushion is not slammed all the way to the ground. It is very comfortable. In fact, it's about as comfortable as the average compact crossover's second row. Uh, Is just a big, cushy, comfy sec, a third row. Uh, definitely superior to the Escalade, the Yukon, the Expedition, significantly better than the one that we find in the Toyota Sequoia. That's one of the worst third rows in a big vehicle out there. Um, outside of that, the Telluride and the Palisade have very solid third rows, as do the minivans in the United States. Those are actually similarly sized. Minivans generally have a little bit more thigh support for adults, but Relatively similar headroom and legroom figures actually to what we find in those two Uh, Grand Highlanders numbers are still a little bit uh, up in the air. We don't know all the legroom figures, so it's difficult to say, but the Grand Highlander does seem to have a much more accommodating third row uh, than average for the three row segment. So if you're debating between Grand Highlander and pilot, I would definitely go Grand Highlander for the third row. Um, On the EV side of things, the EV9 is shockingly large in the third row. And that is something I did not expect. If you want to see those two third rows compared, we have a video on that. But uh, EV9 actually has more headroom than we find in Telluride, more than in Grand Highlander. And the seat bottom cushion, because of the totally flat floor, which I had not completely expected, uh, actually gives you better thigh support for especially adults and teenagers than we find in the Telluride. Uh, The... In the Telluride and most three row crossovers, the rear suspension, the gas tank and things like that, they're packaged more or less under the third row seat or sometimes even the second row seat. So when you look at, for instance, Telluride and you open the second doors and you look in the car, you'll notice that the floor up front, front row, second row, those are level. And then it steps up about four and a half inches or so right under the second row seats. So legroom for the second row is fine. But then under the second row seats, it steps up and then that continues high across the rear and actually goes up even further on top of the third row. Um, because of the packaging of the electric motors and the flat battery pack we find in the EV9, the floor actually stays that same height until it gets under the third row seat. So you don't have that knee in your chest kind of feeling uh, that you find in the uh in the Telluride um, and uh, sort of parcel of this, I will answer this one last question, but it's the last one, I promise. Uh, so Grand Highlander versus Telluride. I am unsure at this point in time because we don't have all the specifications for Grand Highlander yet. They've given us a little bit. Third row room seems pretty similar. But remember, the second row and first row seats move forward and backward. And in any vehicle where those seats move, you want to take a look at how everything comes together numbers wise. And that is something that we don't know just yet. Uh, We will know more in May, though. So be sure and stay tuned for that cargo room is pretty similar. I prefer the interior design of the Telluride over what we see in the Grand Highlander. But I think the Grand Highlander is definitely attractive and definitely appears to be nicer uh, than the regular Highlander, just as you'd expect. Now, on the downside, Grand Highlander has a hybrid. It actually has two different hybrid systems uh, that are going to be available in the U.S. One is probably going to be a little bit more fuel efficient than the Telluride. The other one, way more efficient than the Telluride. So... If you are interested in 30 plus miles per gallon, then you should definitely go in that direction. Well, unfortunately, that was our last question. So be sure and stay tuned because our next live show is going to be on the 21st. Uh, if you have a question that remains unanswered, you can always email it to that email address that's going to be down there scrolling across your screen. That's hey at autobuyersguide.com, he at autobuyersguide.com. And we will, of course, include those questions on future episodes, future podcasts, et cetera. So we will see all of you next week. Have a great weekend.